0: Could you forgive a stranger who had murdered one of your loved ones? Thankfully, for most of us, it's a question that never passes the hypothetical stage, though I suspect few of us would answer in the affirmative. In this episode, I speak with Rose Kuhn, a young woman from California, for whom, sadly, this question has been asked and answered. But her response will likely surprise and certainly inspire you. If you listened to the last episode, you'll recall that it involved the harrowing story of Sarah Paul Lin, a survivor of the Cambodian genocide, who miraculously escaped to the United States. This story begins at the same point in time, as Rose's family were caught up for similar reasons in the same conflict.
1: My mom and dad's life in Cambodia, they lived in the countryside in Battambang, Cambodia, and they weren't like a rich family. They were more considered as the poor poor class. But my mother sold food like a vendor with my grandma and her sister, and my dad was a performer. He did comedy, he was a speaker. He was also a low-level soldier too, so nothing like major big. But they just lived in the the countryside. They were poor. They lived happily, like not happily, but they lived day to day, getting by. And when the Khmer Rouge came on uh, April 1975, it's when they told the Khmer Rouge told everybody to leave the city. So they didn't really know what was going on. My parents, they just followed. Everybody, because everybody was all walking in one direction, so they went ahead and walked in this uh one direction, and they went on this train, and this train led them to the countryside and they still they they have no idea they thought that there was rumors or saying that the war was over or they're having a new president, they're cleaning out the cities, so they had no idea, so they just went, although the belongings that they could take with them were some pictures, just whatever you can. Hold with you. They were there, but when they got to the countryside, they separated the men from the woman. My parents, I think they got there a little late to where you go check in. And so they were asking, oh, what do you do? My dad told them the truth, say, oh, I'm a soldier. What class, what this and that. But before he even went on this like cargo, kind of like, you know how the UN put a bunch of people in the back. But before that, my mom said that they gathered Tons of soldiers and army already. My mom said it was like, like a, a football sides of people of soldiers in one area where they were they were shot off, they were killed, they were tortured. They just all the soldiers they all got executed. When you're there, like if you were a teacher, you wore glasses, you look smart, you're dead. You had any kind of education, you were dead. A lot if you're singers or performer, like they didn't want any influence. Going into this regime, but they, they had no idea what was coming. So my father got very lucky because he was a low level soldier, soldier, and he was like towards the end of it. So they kept him. So they already split my mom from my dad already. They also split my grandma from my mom. So it's my mom, her sister, my older brother. So they were in the camp where they worked in the the rice paddy, and the pulling weeds and stuff. And they only got one bowl of rice a day where my mom was at they gave it to my mom for I think a a week or two and they stopped before that she already knew how to hunt how to fish how to look at different trees in the jungle to see which one is edible or not so she had that skill with her that I think that really helped her during that time
0: so the Khmer Rouge still expected your mother to work but they cut off her food so she had no nourishment but she was still expected to go out there and labor in the fields.
1: Yeah. Some people work like 14 hour days, 12 hour days. Like they just made you work in the rice paddy, getting rice, making rice or just work in the fields. My mom had a, a daughter who died out of starvation wow. because there was nothing to eat. And my mom hunted snakes. Like she, I asked her this morning, I was like, you weren't afraid of snakes? She's like, no. She said the snakes were one of the things that she caught most often because a lot of people were scared of it. You know, she would go in the river and had techniques to get the snakes. And in the jungle, when she's hunting, she has this ear for it where she's like, oh, it's coming by. So she got the snake and that's how she survived back then was hunting. And you had to hide your food. Like The communists knew that you were hunting and you had food. You would have been killed. So essentially, they were trying to starve you to death anyway. They're trying to make everybody the same, you know, same haircut. Everybody, you're all the same now. The fact that, oh, there's no rich, no poor. You guys are all the same now. But there's somebody else that's benefiting from all this work that they were doing.
0: How did your parents escape from the situation? And also, you had said they were separated whilst in these camps. So how were they able to, A, find each other and B, Escape from the country.
1: It took my dad six months to find where my mom was. And during that six months, there was a Khmer Rouge guy, the higher tops that adored my mom. Because the Khmer Rouge, deep down inside them, they were human just like us. You know, but what they did was horrible. Like, don't get me wrong. You know, what they did was horrible. But there was this one soldier, a Khmer Rouge soldier, that helped my mom hide and give her some food. You know, it wasn't much, but, you know, he was able to get dried fish, a little salt, a little sugar to give to my mom. The Khmer Rouge, the camp that she was staying at, my mom wasn't a singer. She liked to sing. So she's like almost like every every night in the evenings, they will get, call my mom to go sing for the Khmer Rouge. And she would sing whatever songs they want her to sing. They're like, oh, sing this song, sing that song. And she was able to get a little bit of food from them for doing that.
0: Wow, that's incredible.
1: So within that six months, when my dad found my mom, the guy that liked my mom was a Khmer Rouge soldier. He wanted to kill my dad because he what? didn't like that. So under that time, somebody told my father saying, you guys have to leave if you want to still be alive. When my dad found my mom, so I don't know how long it took them, but they escaped in the middle of the night. They didn't go into the jungle because you can get lost in the jungle. So what they did is they escaped, but they stayed on the railroad path, had no idea where they're going. To, they were just walking. And my mom said that her feet got blistered and it was so hot in the sun because there's no shoes. So she used a shirt that she ripped up and she tied it on her feet to help with the pain.
0: So following on from that path, then presumably at some point they were able to cross the border into what, Vietnam or Thailand?
1: Thailand. Yeah. During their walk in, my mom says she heard like trucks or something, like something moving. So they ran towards the truck and it was the UN collecting people to go to Thailand border called Kaodang. My mom didn't know where she was going. She just seen them and the Thai people was like, get on, get on, get on in, in Thai. Yeah. And they just got on and they got to Kaodang, the refugee camp.
0: You mentioned that you had a younger sibling who sadly died in the camp. You also mentioned that you had an older brother. Was he still with your parents at this point?
1: Yes, yes. My older brother was still alive with my parents. I think he was around seven years old. They stayed in Kaodang, the refugee camp, for I think a year or two until they got sponsored to come to America. And when they got sponsored to come to America, my mom had twins in 79, you know, she was like, Oh, America, it's heaven. Like, it's going to be amazing. It's going to look like heaven. I don't know her what heaven described for her. But right. as she rode on the plane, she was like, See a bunch of dead trees. And she's like, What? This is America? <laughs> and so she was like, Had my twin brothers, they were probably like one years old, like they're still young. And my parents didn't know what a diaper was. So they were on the flight to come to America. And the flight attend- attendance gave my parents, Two diapers and they just gave it to them and they took off my dad was like looking at the diaper like expecting it like what is this honey like you know in cambodian like what is it they opened it they they had no idea so they're like oh it's a pillow so my dad he kind of folded up and put it like a neck rest and he was like yeah yeah it feels good you know so they, they both were using the diaper as a neck pillow like a pillow and then the flight attendants walked by and they're like No, no, no. And, you know, they had to, like, show my parents, like, it's a diaper. It's for the the kids, not you.
0: Wow. So it must have been a massive culture shock for them coming from rural Cambodia in the 1970s to America, which, you know, at the time was the world leader in technology and things like that. Did your parents even speak English at the time? And when they arrived, was there some kind of settlement program to help them get adjusted into what must have just been like a completely alien country and culture to them?
1: The people that sponsored them was kind of some church. So they gave them like housing in the projects. They first came to Atlanta, Georgia. They stayed in like a project, like apartments. And then um, my dad's godbrother lived in California. I don't know how they found the connection, but he called him, was like, hey, California has a lot of opportunities here. Won't you guys come? So my parents, it was my grandpa, my grandma, my aunt, her three kids, and my dad all took a Greyhound from Atlanta, Georgia, all the way to California. And there was one uh, a stop where they seen vending machines. My brothers were thirsty and they seen some people put some quarters in the vending machine and got some drink outs and drinking. My parents were curious. They're like, oh, you know, they're, they're thirsty. Go get them something. So my dad, and, and you know, investigated and inspect and they got a diet Pepsi or something like that. They never drank soda before. They don't know, even know what it is. So my mom took a sip, was like, oh, this is not something that she liked. And so she, she gave it to my brothers. They were like young. So they but... both had diarrhea after that. <laughs>
0: Once you were in America, your father opened up a video store. And I remember earlier, you mentioned that he was involved in entertainment. He was an entertainer. Was that a factor in him choosing to open up that type of store? Or was it just happenstance?
1: I think it was just an opportunity. Before, when they came to America, they worked in the farms and, and stuff like that. They were able to save money and then they opened a donut shop. But that failed So they split the money up and then my dad's like found this opportunity for a Cambodian VHS video store in San Jose.
0: So as a kid growing up, what was it like for you? Because you're born in America. So on one hand, you're just a regular American kid. But on the other hand, you have this older sibling who has these traumatic childhood memories of Cambodia. You have your parents who spent, you know, a portion of their adult life in Cambodia, didn't even speak English, suddenly found themselves in this country. So on one hand, you're a regular American kid. On the other hand, home life, you must have felt like it was a different realm because you obviously had that strong Cambodian feel to it just with family and connections in the neighborhood, right? We all lived
1: in like one house. So it was where we stayed at, in Modesto, California, we have like the whole family, grandma, grandpa, like we all live together. In our neighborhood there were other Cambodians. So I grew up in a Cambodian community where all our neighbors were Cambodian. That's been through the it's genocide. Ex- yes.
0: Yeah. So then you're a young kid. You've grown up in America. Your family are in this Cambodian community, but settling into America, your father has this business. And then this. Horrific event strikes when your father is murdered, and it has a connection going back to Cambodia because the killer was himself a Cambodian refugee. Now, you know, at the time, as a young kid, I don't know if you made that connection in terms of the bigger picture with uh, Cambodia and the killing fields, and the escape. But what do you remember from the time when your father was killed?
1: On July 7th, 1990, a group of Cambodian gangs from the Bay Area, they needed money. They went to go scope out my dad's uh, video store. And they were like, oh, this is easy rob. Like, oh, be like right here. This is where we're going to get the money. They came in like 4.30 in the afternoon. There were like six of them. They all went in and they're like, Boo, Boo is uncle in Cambodia. And they say, Boo, give me your money. So they're saying, hey, uncle, give me your money. And then my dad, which I just found out through letters from writing to Bob, is that my dad asked, why are you guys doing this? Why are you guys doing this? That's what Bob told me in the letters that my dad, one of the words that he said to him was like, why are you doing this? So my dad made a sudden movement. He thought my dad had a gun and and shot my dad. And then they took off.
0: How old were these kids in this gang?
1: So the shooter, Harvey, was like just turned 18. The driver was 21. And the rest of them were like 13, 14, 15.
0: How as a family were you able to cope with your father's death? You know, I mean, he was, in a sense, the provider. He ran a business and so forth. Your mother and him had emigrated to America. Suddenly you're in this strange land This horrific, unthinkable event happens, your young kid how did you cope?
1: I think what helped us cope was being in a Cambodian community. Because during that time, we still lived with, you know, my grandma, my grandpa, and my aunt, we had the family to kind of just like lean back on. And also, grandpa came to America, he converted to Christianity. So he was in the church community. And it was just the support and love from the Cambodian community that really helped my
0: mom. Years later, as an adult, I know that you reached a point where you were able to forgive Bob, the individual who'd killed your father. How did you reach that point, be it psychologically, spiritually, that you felt able to find that peace with this individual who was responsible for this heinous crime?
1: My family, we didn't really talk about that anymore because my mom remembered that when she went to the courthouse after my dad's been shot, they went to court. And when she sat down and she seen Bob come out of the courthouse, when she first seen him, she's like, he's just a little kid. And I think at that moment there, my mom just like, it just washed something, just let her like forgive in that moment of time there. So growing up, we didn't talk about him at all. And uh, there were speculations and rumors going on, like it was a, a politic hit, like somebody hired some kids to kill my dad because he was in the Cambodian politics. That was a rumor going on. So I didn't really know, like, did they really just rob my dad or was there something behind it? So that was in my mind growing up. I guess it was just like one day when I was six, seven years ago, like I was 36 years old is when I realized like there's something more to life. And I didn't know what it was. I believe that when you are ready, the universe that gives you the answer. I never thought about the killer or anything like that. So one day when I was driving, a voice came to me and said, forgive the man that killed your father. And I was like, what? No way. I don't even think about this man at all, you know, but that voice that came in, it sparked a fire within me. That's where my healing journey began is that voice.
0: So it was kind of like a subconscious voice from within, be it, you know, from God or your soul or what have you.
1: It presented to me and I was totally ready. I looked him up and started looking into my dad's case and reading about like everything. And then realized that what? He's in a book. I was like, okay, I gotta find this book. So I found it on Amazon. It called Dream Shattered. And it's about a counselor that goes and sees kids, kids at the California, like CYA, like juvenile hall youth. So I read about him in this book, how he went to go rob my dad. You know, it's was like, that's my dad, you know, the video store owner. And that's when I got a little snippet of him. And this book was describing about how these kids had trauma and how they were neglected at home and how they didn't have support. So that gave me a background story of why they did what they did.
0: And so, of course, Bob himself like your parents, was born in Cambodia?
1: Yes. He was born in uh, Cambodia, uh, and he survived the killing field too. His dad was killed in the killing field. His sister was killed. So it was just him and his mom that survived it.
0: And so is that why he ended up in this gang with these other young kids from Cambodia?
1: Yes, because they weren't accepted back then. So they had to, like, team up because... Uh, Back then, it was like, stay with your group, the Asian gangs and Mexican gangs.
0: And then having forgiven Bob, you decided to take things a step further and actually reach out to him. And you wrote him a letter. Tell me about that.
2: During the process of writing him, because I was like, okay, I'm going to write him a letter. But what really happened was I had to write down all my feelings and the event that happened, my experience of what happened. And it was five pages long. And I realized, like, you know what? This stuff that I just wrote down, it was for me. So when I wrote to him, it was just one page. I just told him that me and my mother, we forgive you. What happened in the past, it's okay. Like, we moved on with our life, or we're not holding any grudges or hate or anything. I wanted him to know that. And I sent him the letter, I think, in, like, February or March. And then he didn't receive the letter until, like, a couple months later. So I'm sure that the people in prison, because they open the letters and read it and stuff, they hold on to it to make sure that, Should we give this to him or not? And then also I used my sister-in-law's address because I was like, I I don't know this guy, you know? Right. (laughs) And it took him like a month or two before he wrote me back. But when he got my letter and he was in disbelief, he read like the first sentence and closed back up and was like walking back and forth in his cell, like in disbelief. And then I think he said that he didn't read the letter till the next day. He said that, thank you for giving him the chance to say, I'm sorry. He always wanted to apologize to my family, but he didn't know how. And when I wrote to him, I gave the chance to apologize to my family.
0: And after his response, from what I understand, you actually stayed in communication with him for a few years.
2: Yeah, for a few years. Yes. We talked about life. He was on the Buddhist pathway, which is uh, he follows like the eight noble truths. After getting to know him through letters that he's not this 18 year old kid anymore. I think he was in his late 40s when I wrote to him. Mm-hmm. I think he's like 50 now, but he's like in the late 40s. He's a changed person. He wasn't that little kid anymore. So I got to to get to know him.
0: How did your family feel about you getting in contact with Bob? I mean, thinking of obviously your mother, you know, she lost her husband. Your brother, who was a young child in Cambodia, came over, and then his father is killed. How did they react to this? Was this something they had objections to, or were they supportive?
2: They were pretty supportive. They were a yeah, curious, like, oh, wow. My older brother said that he wouldn't get out of his way to go write to him, you know? Right. <laughs> Which is, that's fair. I kept my brothers involved. He wrote and, you know, just gave them, like, some update. They were pretty supportive by sending newspapers about my dad. And, and my mom is supportive because I talked to her before I wrote to this man. Our relationship with my, me and my mom, uh, it was a deeper relationship because we were able to go in a little deeper and made our connection a lot stronger. I wrote a couple of letters to the governor to help Bob get out of prison. I was at his parole hearing, I think a couple of years ago through Zoom, and I was able to sit down and watch the people like, interviewing him and how it went and everything. And I was able to speak at the end of the hearing. He is out now. He's been out for maybe two years. They said that they made sure that, you know, he's out not because of me, but because of his work that he's been doing in prison.
0: It's really a tragic story, obviously, what happened to your father. And obviously, prior to that, the whole situation in Cambodia with the Khmer Rouge, which you weren't alive for, but clearly has impacted your family and so many others. Yet, somehow you're at this point with disgrace that you were able to forgive bob and you seem to just have this kind of positive outlook on life despite manifold obstacles that would have derailed a lot of people where does your strength come from are you a you know particularly spiritual kind of person
2: i grew up a christian because my grandpa converted to a christianity and he he was a pastor so i grew up going to church every sunday Mm -hmm. And I also grew up with my mom being a Buddhist and going to the temple. So I had this combination of both seeing the Buddhist view and the the Christianity view. It just made me like a better person. I think more, I'm more spiritual. I think it's having that faith within us, going back home to who you are like in here Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: connecting with your own power. Without my parents having faith, especially my mom having faith during those tough times, I think that's why she's still alive. Really? She had something that she held on that prayed for, to like having hope that it will be better, and that I think made her like she's still here. That she is alive. That she made through through the killing fields, and then now I'm here now, having hope. Like there's something better for all of us, for humanity. It's learning to have just, like, the trust, the faith within yourself. That things will, like, it's it's always working out for us.
0: Rose, I really appreciate you speaking to me about, you know, your personal tragedy and your personal growth. I think it's a tragic story, but you have, you know, been an inspiration in terms of how you have learned from this, And how you have adapted and grown. It's just it's really extraordinary. And I really appreciate you sharing it with me. To wrap up this episode. I'm doing something uncharacteristic. That I have never done before. Which is just speaking off the cuff. But I wanted to share. What is happening with the podcast. Over the next few months. As we are fast approaching the end of the year. Or at least I am. In terms of editing the episodes. And doing the last interviews. For this year's content. So, since we just talked about Asia, I'll let you know that we have a few more episodes related to Asia coming up. One, with an expert on North Korea. We also have a Vietnam War veteran coming on the show, as well as a familiar voice, if you listen to the show regularly, Dr. Ian Hodges of the Australian Department of Veterans Affairs. He will be here to talk about Australia's often overlooked involvement in that particular conflict. Then heading to Polynesia, have a remarkable woman called Michelle Manu coming on the show. We have former MTV star Joshua Greenfield. We've got two very well-known actresses coming on. Another familiar voice, Professor Mauro Nobili, will be back to talk about history being falsified. I'll be talking to people who were involved in the capture of Saddam Hussein and the Beirut hostage situation with Hezbollah in the 1980s and a fella you may never have heard of called Major Deegan Nope, I'd never heard of him either Additionally, the breakout movie success of the summer is called The Sound of Freedom starring Jim Caviezel I'll be speaking to the executive producer of that project Also going to be talking about Somalia about Stephen Hawking's and the debate as to whether science can prove God is real. We'll be talking about Scott of the Antarctica and a controversial figure from Britain called Piers Gaveston. So pretty much we've got a whole array of different topics here, different experts, celebrities, some well-known, some not so well-known, experts in their fields from universities and so forth. So I'm really excited about what's coming up the next three months. But as ever, if there are any topics that you think that I should cover, and there have been several this year that were recommended by people in the audience, including one that's still to come, please email me at author at danielmainwaring.com and I'll give it consideration. I mean, if it's a fascinating person, fascinating place, be it contemporary, be it historic, well-known, obscure, it really doesn't matter. If there's a good story there, That I can get my teeth into and is interesting then I'll give it full consideration so please continue to send me your ideas I have a lot of ideas of my own they're pretty eclectic as you can tell looking at the catalogue everything from astronauts to exorcists but I also want to get your feedback to make sure that I'm producing episodes you want got a couple of spots left for the year that have yet to be filled two episodes to be precise And then I'll be working on episodes for 2024. So if you feel there has been an area of the world that has been underrepresented, let me know. For example, I can tell you South America has been underrepresented thus far. I've only done two episodes on South America. I am working on getting more episodes because there is so much to cover from that particular continent. My best friend is from Ecuador too. So I know I need to do more about South America. Early on, I was mostly Eurocentric just from my own background, but I've had a lot of episodes now on Africa. More recently, I've had some great episodes pertaining to Asia. So I want to just kind of find those different stories from all around the world, whether it's Hawaii, Antarctica, or wherever. I also haven't done anything on other planets yet, although I have had a couple of astronauts on and the Smithsonian expert. So you know, there's a whole universe out there. So anyway. Let me know your ideas. Let me know where you would like the show to go next year. Nothing is off the table, as you have seen. Diverse topics are great. As long as there's a good story there, give me your ideas. Let me know. And thank you for listening this year and helping to support the show. Continue to grow. And as I say, the next three months, we have got excellent, excellent guests coming on here. So I think it's going to be a really good mix of diverse topics. And I hope you continue to enjoy it. Thank you.